I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And this week, we're going to take a little breather. We're going to come up for a little perspective. We're going to take a look back. As we map out upcoming episodes, which promise to be a little bit special, we're going to go through this week with a little bit of best of, some of the curated hand-picked pieces from the best episodes that we found most revealing in the world of performance over the early parts of the 2019 season. Four little pieces, very interesting, just the snippets, just the need-to-knows. But before we dive into them, I want to give you a little chance for some beta fun, or beta, as we might say in England. See, as we know, last week we transitioned our current Purple Patch athletes to a brand new training and education program that's been specifically designed for time-staffed triathletes. This is a year-round training and education program. We designed it for anyone that's racing Olympic distance Ironman or half Ironman distances, but is, yes, time-staffed, looking to integrate into life. And the whole purpose behind the program is to empower you, the athlete, to put you in control of your performance within that very busy life. Our main design goals behind this was, yes, we want to radically improve the training experience for the remote athlete. Those are the not really living in San Francisco and can't participate in our San Francisco squad here. We also wanted to stick to our beliefs and the key fundamental belief that education is the backbone of every Purple Patch program. And at the same time, we want to retain the same methodology that served us so well over the last decade plus. And that, of course, is that when we have or you have a smart and appropriate endurance training program with integrated strength, a backbone of very simple but important nutritional habits, all supported with proper recovery and sleep, you accelerate every time. And not just in sport, but in life. And that's the main purpose. Well, I just want to tell you, we're pretty much ready for you lot now. Now, many of you have been knocking on the door, asking for a peek, seeing when you can get involved. But we've been patient. We've really wanted to nurture and support our already existing Purple Patch athletes. The good news, we're getting there. The crack in the door gets a little wider. Next week, we plan to invite a select group to go all beta on us. One to two weeks have been the first athletes in. Once we really feel like we've got that dialed in, a week or so following that, we're going to go live and open it up. So if you're interested in joining and you want to get some first access, simply email info at purplepatchfitness.com, title that email beta, B-E-T-A, and we'll reach out to you and we'll make sure that we try to get you involved. You can have more details on the squad if you just go to our shiny new Purple Patch website, www.purplepatchfitness.com, and you can read all about the squad. But if you want to get involved, if you want to be first in the door, then email info at purplepatchfitness.com, title it up, beta. Now, let's do the jingle. We like the way he thinks, serious with the way. Let's open the book, it's time to take a peek. It's the Dictionary Word of the Week. And the word of the week this week is action. 
the importance of taking action, not being a victim of your own circumstance. This week's word of the week bubbled up following approach of a good mate of mine, Peter, this very last weekend. You see, Peter and I decided to head out to New York and compete in a long-distance trail running race. Despite being, well, let's be a little frank here, rather unprepared for the distance, we just thought it would be a good crack and a fun adventure. It certainly ended up being an adventure, but one with even greater challenge than we anticipated. Much more rocky, much more slimy, and even more hilly than we could imagine. Simply put, the course, well, it beat us up. Many, many hours of challenge. Well, upon finishing the race, several minutes in front of me, I want to point out, Peter started to feel the after effects. His last few miles, he got joined with a little bit of vomiting. And then, of course, finishing the race, on came those post-race cramps that so many people get to lay victim to. He lay on the ground, waiting for the unwelcome sensations to pass. Now, let's pause here. This is where so many athletes wallow. They take no direct action, there's that word, action, to try and shift and evolve their situation. I feel terrible, I'm feeling rough, woe is me. It's no different than when they start to shut down in the latter stages of a marathon or an Ironman and they have so many other roadblocks that are inevitable when you're doing endurance sports. You hit them and they become paralysed emotionally and physically. The good news? Pete didn't fall victim to his circumstances. Instead, he took very simple action in aim to fix. I'm cramping. I've lost the contents of my stomach. I'm certainly dehydrated and I'm certainly low on electrolytes. I don't have any calories in the system. I'm sure I'm dehydrated. So I need everything that I can, but I probably don't feel like taking in anything. Now, if you've done anything like these types of events, you're going to appreciate that something like a gel or some chews or blocks are about the worst thing that you want in this stage. But he had to take action. So instead, we went on search. We found some chicken noodle soup, electrolyte, fluids, food. 15 minutes later, bingo. The cramps dissipate, the stomach settles, the brain frog begins to lift. You see, he took action. And that's central to any point in your performance in racing. Always remain solutions-based, don't fall into passive, always take action. His action was really simple, chicken noodle soup, but it was the pathway to feeling better and getting stable. Now I promise you the good part of this story is that he went from prone and sick to beer tent within 30 minutes. What more can we dream of than that? But it only happened due to his solutions-based mindset and within the fog and fatigue of sickness. And that is why this week, the word of the week is action. Now, let's get something to go with Peter's beer. We're on to the meat and potatoes. So folks, four main little pieces from some of the best parts of the most interesting episodes so far. The first piece from episode 51, The Art of Coaching and Being Coached. This proved to be a really popular episode and it's really designed for coaches and athletes, but also for any team manager whose job is to empower and create a culture for success within your team. And so here I talk about the roles of a coach and also offer guidelines on entering into an empowering and trusting partnership that breeds confidence, education, 
communication, and ultimately, of course, what we really want, success. I hope you enjoy. So for an athlete lens, as we go above the line for the first time today, I don't want you to fall into believing that a coach is going to make your goals mean something to you. The coach won't drive your motivation. They won't provide every answer. They simply won't. It comes from you. And therefore, you should realize that this performance journey is your journey. You own it. And I would advise that you never relinquish ultimate ownership, both in terms of success and failure. Now, I hear it now, but wait, if it's all on me, why be coached anyway? Well, it's tough on your own. Leaders need leaders, and the very best performers in sport and the business world all require and embrace support, enhanced perspective, and wisdom. And that's really one of some of the central pieces of coaching. You see, your best coach should be your expert to help you on your journey, setting the path to success, keeping you to account and on course, allowing and facilitating awareness and perspective along the journey while you're doing the really tough thing, the doing, in the weeds, day to day. And so a coach should help you with external perspective and hopefully have the wisdom that actually becoming the lighthouse in your journey. A nice way to think of it is, look, you're the pilot, but your coach is the instructor, the air traffic controller, and of course, at some stages, the emergency responders. So from your side of things, as an athlete, that's the value of a coach. But what about from a coach's lens? What's the responsibility? What's the role if you are listening as a coach, well, guess what? All you keyboard assassins out there who believe that your coaching job is done once you hit send on a freshly mapped training program, that ain't coaching. That is simply training planning. At its core, I think that coaching has two main critical components. And the first is, yes, prescription, mapping a roadmap all the way down from a big seasonal lens down to the daily and session level of the program that is suitable for your athlete and their goals and their level and perhaps most importantly, especially for the time staffed, a program that integrates into their life. But that is not job done. The second part of it is education. This should be the backbone of your role to educate and in turn, empower. And the goal of the education should be to empower the athlete to self-manage. You see, with athletic ownership mindset, the athlete's journey is always going to be more meaningful and sustainable because if they actually understand the program and they feel like they have ownership of it, it becomes a very different beast than simply checking the boxes of what daddy prescribed. The second part of education, it should be absolutely central to the athlete executing your wonderful training program as intended, not as interpreted. And there's a big disconnect that happens there. You can write a program, but unless the athlete is empowered to understand the meaning of the why behind the program, it's never going to yield and it's never going to be executed as intended. 
And so if you're a coach, this is a great time to take a step back, maybe pause the podcast and have a reflection. Do your training programs look like some stodgy casserole? Great ingredients, but all mixed up into an indiscernible mess? The only way to drive someone forward is to educate, to show them the key pieces, the mission, and how to manage the plan when they're actually in what we would call application mode. What happens when life gets in the way and brings rest days? What happens when they have terrible sleep because they've got a load of stress at work or their three-year-old is sick for the night? How do they manage? They can't be just a response of listening to what daddy says. It has to be empowered as an athlete. And guess what? The education part, it is ongoing and never-ending. But trust me, at the same time, it is rewarding and fun. And so with these two backbones of coaching, so sets the coaching routine. So what do we mean by that? Let's dive into that. We know that coaching is great prescription and great education. Of course, then there's the other stuff, holding to account, providing feedback, etc., etc. But here's the way with these two backbones that I think about the coaching routine. So the first is you're setting the path and the vision relative to the goals. So that's really a roadmap. And yes, a roadmap means that you have to refer to it because if you're going to stay on track, you have to realize that ultimately we have the destination, what we often call the North Star. You create the roadmap to get there. But there's also a realization when you are in application mode as a coach and athlete partnership that sometimes you need to change the route to get there. But that's part one, the roadmap. The second then is getting the athlete executing that program as you intend. Of course, we just talked about that. That's all of the education. And then the third component is helping the athlete come out of the weeds. As I mentioned earlier before, the athlete is doing the hard part. The athlete is doing the doing. So they're on a day-to-day -day basis having to navigate this program, having to work very hard and having to manage it within the confines of their life. And so a part of your role then is to track progress, adjust if necessary, and allow the athlete to gain perspective. And that takes feedback and great communication. So this is your role. And it might sound overwhelming, but I promise you, it is rewarding. All right, so the next piece of the puzzle, this is almost an extension of that coaching relationship. Now we talk about culture. How do you create a culture in which it facilitates people thriving? This is drawn from episode 53. There are many parallels between performance within a set of world-class athletes and, of course, performance within business teams. And your mission as an effective coach or leader is to create sustained performance and long-term buying from your team. The only way to do this is first, you have to create an effective performance model for yourself, the leader. You see, you can only create a powerful team if you've set up great performance and rejuvenation habits for yourself. But on from there, we have to go into the second part, which is setting up a framework and culture to enable everyone to thrive and accelerate. And as a leader and manager, you are the coach and how you set up your performance culture will ultimately determine your effectiveness. In this episode, 
I share advice on creating intentional focus in order to thrive in both the sporting and the workplace environments. I hope you enjoy. And so we have to try and identify these goals within context or linking to that North Star. And the second part then, coming out of those goals, isn't just to say this is what we want to achieve, but for enabling me as a coach to get the athlete to understand their job. What role do they have to play? How do their actions buy into setting up the goals and the successful completion of them, and of course, progress them along their journey? So on the side of the manager, it's really important that you set up short-term goals and they must tie into the North Star. But the reason for doing it is to facilitate intentional focus of action. I love that phrase, intentional focus. Whenever you're operating in a business team, there is always so much to focus on. But the real management skill is to identify the key things that will move the performance needle. And that is identifying and anchoring into the mission. But the second part of that, just like my coaching role, is to get your team members to understand their role. What is their role within these goals and how will their actions buy into actually facilitating progression towards the North Star? So now you have a framework. What's next? Nail the basics. Now you're getting into the doing and you're facilitating the team doing the doing. And so for me as a coach, we talk about nailing the basics so that we can help our athlete and athletes navigate what we call the blizzard of bullshit. There are so many inputs out there. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But how do we actually go through all of the inputs and identify in Purple Patch its seven habits that move the performance needle 95% of the way to success. And if they can become a master of those habits, and then progression is almost guaranteed. It's no different for you, the manager. You have your goals. And if we know that there are 25 things that could create perfection, you want to identify the absolute five things individually that your team members should focus on to move their performance needle that contribute to those goals and ultimately the mission. And so nailing the basics for you is coming up out of the weeds, gaining perspective and saying, these are the elements to focus on. It all sounds very basic and it all sounds very simple, but I promise you, these are the performance needling elements. The fourth component, feedback and accountability. Do you remember we talked about the characteristics? They don't just ask for, they demand feedback and accountability. But for me as a coach, I really have two roles in this. The first is I have to hold them accountable to their goals. So a story here is just a couple of weeks ago, I had an athlete approach me, one of our athletes who's a very good age grouper, and said, I want to become a professional triathlete, so I'm going to go all in. My response, are you sure? Are you really sure? Go away and think about it. And the reason for that, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, was because their behavior is going to be held accountable to those goals. But I'm also in that accountability and feedback loop. My role is not just to hold them accountable, but it's to inspire them to go further than they ever imagined they could possibly do. For you as a manager, you have to link your feedback and accountability to the mission. 
So remember, we talked about setting the clear path with great clarity and facilitating intentional focus with every one of your team understanding their role. Now with accountability, you have to hold them account to their actions and link it to the mission. And the other component of feedback, which I think is really important for you, is that feedback isn't just telling someone where they went wrong. And feedback isn't a big pat on the back and, well done, you're going great. Feedback is trying to be just in time to help them course correct so that they can be successful along their goals. You see, the dirty secret is that performance is not a linear journey. It's chaotic and it's going to require lots of adjustments and a lot of what we call course corrections. And so your job is to come out of the weeds, get out of the doing and help them course correct as much as they can. And that's where you can draw on your experience of probably why you got promoted in the first place of being a great doer. The final component, empowerment. I always say my success is my irrelevance. And that's because if I'm coaching an athlete, I want them to be empowered to own their journey. And the same applies for you as a manager. Remember, you want a squadron. You don't want to be the pilot. So the only way that you're going to ultimately be a successful and thriving and loved and respected manager is to become a wonderful, wonderful air traffic controller. Well, I hope you found that piece interesting. Let's expand on that a little bit. So episode 57, we talked about the recovery mindset. So as the importance of recovery has increased and the knowledge and benefits surrounding this topic has grown more popular, it's opened a door to a fleet of pseudoscience and heavy marketing that, of course, only leads for you guys to confusion and ultimately the dilution of the message around recovery. Recovery cannot be an afterthought in your performance life. You simply have to get it right if you're not only going to improve in your sport, but also thrive in health, work, and every other part of your life. If you want to be the best version of yourself, you have to have integrated recovery to facilitate that happening. Find out more in this little piece. Well, we have a saying at Purple Patch, evolve or die. And I think we can apply that saying directly to this case study. So I want to tell you a story about Julie, who's a highly competitive age group triathlete with actually pretty good training capacity. So less time starved than our fitness enthusiast, John. She's highly motivated. She's a hard worker. She's a high achiever. She's qualified to the Hawaii Ironman several times, but she wants to break through to the next level. Her challenge is that ultimately there's a misalignment of race day performance against her trained potential. So in other words, what she displays on the training course doesn't bubble up into the same race day performance that we would expect. And so when we think about Julie, we had to dissect everything, her approach to training, her habits, her mindset, her confidence. What was the thing that we could unhinge her best race performance? How could we take her to the next level? Well, in a diagnosis, the headline news on her was actually ironic. She had, in many ways, too much of a good thing. 
You see, she had a load imbalance with the recovery being underserved relative to the training load. And I didn't feel like it was allowing performance jumps or the greatest adaptation from all that hard work put in. The next part of the diagnosis was all around looking over the fence. You see, Julie had a tendency to chase more to try and get to the next level. And the ironic solution was the next level was already in her. She just needed to bring out what she could already do on the training days. It just wasn't happening on race days. But of course, it's a tendency as a high achieving elite athlete to chase more and more and more. If I'm at this level, the only passage is to do more. And so I realized that she was looking over the fence, looking at others' training programs, not thinking about herself and chasing more. So far as eating for Julie, she was a great clean eater. She had a nice platform of all of the nutrients you would expect. Her basic habits were really good. There was just a volume challenge. She probably wasn't eating enough relative to the amount of training that she was doing. So her recovery was underserved by it. Her preparation for the tough sessions wasn't adequate. And so there was a component of eating, as there so often is with male and female elite athletes, in which we actually had to not evolve the habits or the timing and not really change what was in the eating program, but actually just amplify, eat more calories to provide support for the training load. And then, of course, the actual recipe of training itself. She had too many sessions and days that were hard. There just simply wasn't enough easier days in there. She had three, if not four days, typically four days that were very, very tough. And the one thing that she missed was actually managing and looking at global stress, having a very hard bike ride with a runoff one day, the next day a hard swim with an endurance ride, the next day having a very challenging swim and a speed run. Every single day, was a little whack of a hammer. And when you accumulate it over the course of seven seven days, it ended up causing suppression. And so ultimately, she was systemically stressed, slightly underfed, looking to chase more, and there simply wasn't enough of a balance between that magic recovery and the training stress that she was trying to achieve. What it really meant, her recipe wasn't ideal in providing the performance yield when it really counted. And so what could we do? Well, the intervention in Julie's side, of course, was the antithesis of what the instinct is. Because when performance isn't there, the instinct was to throw more. But in fact, it typically comes down just to being more precise. And so a highly effective training session is much greater value than a collection of mediocrity. And this was the driving mission for Julie. We went for a precise program with just the big days being enough to support the platform of progression. So the fundamentals, we brought forward a recovery mindset to the very forefront of the weekly training approach. For her, that meant two, yes, just two, only athlete, two big hard days of training. We then allowed her to add one day of endurance. Two big days, very challenging, often stacking up because she's a triathlete, hard swim, hard bike with a hard run off. But all of the other days being there 
for a supporting purpose, but not to try and drive the performance needle forward. What does supporting purpose mean? Technical, recovery, yep, there's that word again, and preparatory, setting up a key session. And so really, she only had three days of the week, two very challenging and one a bit more endurance-driven, which were really designed to move the performance needle. And everything else was in service of those days. Suddenly, it wasn't a casserole of good ingredients. Instead, it was very defined meat and two veg. I told you we were on the meat and potatoes right now. As a part of this, I had to persuade, and persuasion is the word, I had to persuade Julie to stop counting total training hours. And instead, we just simply focused building around the key days and doing all that we could to be effective during those days. Now, of course, rippling underneath this was that the supporting sessions were building baseline resilience and fitness and were being wholly positive in the overall global performance lens. But in her mindset, it was all about service of those key sessions. In support of this revised training approach, we had Julie double down on nutrition. So we made sure that she was completely committed to fueling, post-workout fueling particularly, and we amplified her baseline eating. And we have to acknowledge that actually when you're training to this level, it's quite stressful emotionally and physically to actually consume enough calories to truly support the training. So for a highly trained athlete, and it sounds counterintuitive and paradoxical to so many of you guys, but it is quite stressful to eat enough to support the training. So we really had to make that a key component. We then, as a part of the training, the final component is that we actually decided to go into a repeated rhythm or pattern of training. So we aligned cycles of training, typically two to three weeks in duration, to repeat, 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 evolve, evolve, evolve. So we went down to simplicity. And the reason for that is because if we're asking the athlete who is highly motivated to make such a drastic change in their training, we wanted to enable them to see and feel progression. And of course, when you have familiarity and you see progression, what comes out of it but confidence? Now, notice there's no magic elixirs here. There's no new toys, there's no new tools, just realignment of habits and approach to the training that's already there. Now, interestingly, her overall training hours didn't really dramatically alter. We added nothing of note. If you're looking at external eyes, we just move things around and we simply transition the goalpost on how we viewed training. And no, training didn't get easier because there is no easier path if you want to be great. It just got more precise. Now, I think it's important to add here on a tangent, we should also highlight mindset, because underlying here is an important tangent, that Julie had something that is really common in racing, which was a weighted mindset. This time must be my time. In other words, stacking pressure on a single day. And so she was so outcome focused and event focused that the looming races were viewed less and less like opportunities to shine and more and more as growing sources of fear. And for this, we had to shift. So what we did was try and get to the roots of why Julie was doing the sport. 
We wanted to make the journey about personal development rather than her competitors. And we wanted to open up permission, I use that word deliberately, permission to have fun. So often forgotten at the elite level, you're allowed to enjoy the process. Yes, it's very serious, but that doesn't mean it can't be fun. And finally, we wanted to focus on the predictability of performance via the training rhythm. So what were the results? Well, for Julie, the backbone was the phrase that I like so much, performance predictability. Achieve this in training and the chances of race performance elevate. Familiarity with what works, emerging confidence and the chance to lift on race day. Out of this arose some special personal performances that ultimately led to good results. Now, the bigger thing though, the most important for me as a coach, was that Julie was smiling and having fun. She was growing in confidence. And it wasn't the outcome that yielded the smiles, but I think it was the lack of deep and hardly noticeable residual fatigue. You see, tiredness destroys the athlete's responsiveness, reaction, performance level, and yes, it destroys happiness and enjoyment. And without that, long-term, Houston, we have a problem. And so globally, Julie really is a great athlete that I can explain the transition from arriving fit and fatigued to emerging to being fit and fresh. One of the great sayings of Purple Patch. But we should also acknowledge again, it doesn't mean that the pathway is easy. It requires the ability to evolve and change old habits. And that takes courage every time. And that, boys and girls, is on you. And so the lesson, well, so often the solution to your performance isn't adding something or working harder. It's finding your recipe. And in my experience, that recipe has to include a blended, all-encompassing framework anchored around the pillars of performance, endurance, nutrition, recovery, and strength. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to win a world championship or simply trying to thrive in life. Those have to be key components. And finally for today, folks, episode 59, Dr. Steve Ingham. How can I not include Steve in the best of 2019 so far? We revisit how to support a champion. You see, believe it or not, there are differences between what we call the super elite, those that are winning the Olympics, and the elite, those that get to go to the Olympics, but ultimately don't perform consistently. The best of the best, according to Steve, strive for success. S-T-R-I-V-E. The acronym STRIVE. What does this aptly name acronym stand for? Let's find out. Now let's talk about the human being. So the people that have managed to beyond the physical characteristics, the people that have managed to get to the level and sustain that level, the emotional and, uh, 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 and psychological traits, what they bring to it from a, from a mindset standpoint. What are some of the common traits that you see in the, the highest performing athletes? Okay. So I've got two part answer for you on this one. And, and, um, I caveat this because the first part of this is that what it, what it, we have observed in the super elites. Yeah. 
and that the super elite would be defined as people that have gone to major competitions and they keep winning as opposed to <laughs> what's actually really quite good. We'd call the elites uh, that have gone to a major competition and won a medal, but they haven't repeated it serially. So there is some good research that separates out the super elite from the, from the elites. And so, and, and I've, I've, delved into this and I've, I've drawn five components out that I, and I've, I've pulled this neatly into an acronym so that I can remember it and it go, it, it strive. So the, the best set their sights high. They have a, a unique focus on the goal. Uh, and there's two components to that so that they will see the top of the mountain. I want to win that, mm-hmm. but they're equally understanding that in order to do that, I need to do this today. So they have this distal goal top of the mountain, but the proximal goal, which is today I need to do this in order to achieve that. They get the stepping stone of that. Basically. Yeah. Yep. And, and having both is essential. The T of strive is tenacity so that people can see that they might need to shift. They might need to break the mold. They might. And, and the interesting evidence around this is that is that super elites shifted sports at least three times. So they were competitive in one sport. Uh, for example, Steve Redgrave was a good runner. Uh, okay. He was a bobslayer. Uh, and then he found rowing. And so there's a tenacity aspect to this of thinking, yeah, I can, I want to win, but I need to find the, the thing that I'm best winning at. The R is resilience. Uh, so the, in the, the capability to bounce back and see failure as an opportunity to learn as opposed to just thinking oh, I'm a failure <laughs> I've, I've lost yep I, that that's dragging me downwards that resilience that ability to to, to bounce back the I is industry because there's no shortcut there's no super pill that that will get you well that, oh, maybe but there's <laughs> some there, there are some super pills but the industry aspect of it everyone has to work hard if they want to achieve something remarkable and that applies to sport and into into life it's going to it's going to be hard work over a long period as well absolutely yeah and the 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 v is value add so that they have a discerning quality that they're able to to move things aside that are a distraction and see things that are going to va- add value to their life and, and move them forward. And the last one that is E, which is equipped. Because you you have to acclimatize your your experience and your confidence to each of the levels. No one stands there at the start line of an Olympic final and thinks, oh, how did I get here? The best indication that you can become Olympic champion is that you were world champion. And so you have to acclimatize to becoming world champion. The best indication of becoming world champion is it might be European champion or, or Pan American champion, champion or whatever. Exactly. It might be, yeah. But you must acknowledge those, those experiences. And so the, the, those, that's the, that's the acronym strive, setting your sights high, tenacity, resilience, industry, value add and equipped. But that I caveat this because this is slightly out of date. I think that uh, increasingly we are seeing performers learn these capabilities as opposed to they are something that they are gifted with, have natural inclination towards, or that an incident in their life has caused them to be extremely focused on goals, for example. I think these are qualities that you can learn. And therefore, I think it, cut, it can be transferable to 
other athletes that might not be resilient, but they can adopt that. Well, that's it, folks. Thanks so much for joining. We have quite a list of guests coming up and lots of subjects to tackle. Next week, adaptability. The challenge, but the key trait of managing change. We call it being change-able. And the highest performers in business and sport are as adept and flourish in environments that offer change and demand adaptability. Now, you can be great too, but it's a learned skill. And most are just generally not equipped to deal with change. So next week, we're going to dive in, we're going to investigate, and hopefully we can begin to develop the tools to set you up to be change-able a high degree of resilience and adaptability. So this episode is going to help those that are looking for their next PR, but also for those that are looking to perform at their best in the workplace. Speaks next time. Take care. Cheers.